Hello, I'm Sarah Khan and welcome to Backing Brilliant Business, a series by Radio Centre. They're the people helping businesses of all sizes grow with great radio advertising. In this series, I will talk to guests who want to share their own unique expertise and experience to help you with your business. From marketing experts who have reshaped how we see a brand in the marketplace to entrepreneurs who've started at the bottom and are now at the top of their field. Each episode, we'll look through our guest CV to discover the most rewarding and most challenging aspects of their career so far. And we discover their three key lessons in business, the learnings, advice and practices that they want to share to help you be better at whatever it is you do. In this episode, we are delighted to be joined by Roger Soul. Roger is the founder of the iconic British luxury fashion brand Mulberry. Synonymous with its signature buckled leather belts and timeless handbags, Mulberry firmly positioned itself as England's global fashion brand, later dubbed as Le Style Anglais. Alongside Mulberry, Roger opened the first designer lifestyle hotel, Charlton House, created the Kilvercourt Designer Outlet Village and became an ambassador for the UN's Life on Land Goal through Together Band, an initiative with his charity Bottle Top. Roger now has his attention on his latest brand, Sharpman Park, an historic 300-acre park and organic mixed economy farm. He primarily grows the ancient grain spelt and aims to bring it back into the British diet. Today he joins us to talk about his chosen theme, creating and reinventing a brand, and shares three lessons that will help you with your business. Roger, it's absolutely lovely to have you with us today. Before we start, I just want to talk about your proudest moments. Winning the first Queen's Award for Export in 1979, opening your first shop in Paris in 1981, winning the first Michelin star in 1996, successful stock market launch in 96. I mean, we can go on and on and on. And so I feel like today with you, you are going to be that complete entrepreneur that takes us from a starting point to a finishing point. We're going to have the highs and the lows, and then we're going to have the reinvention, which I, I think for me, that is the full journey of a truly successful and iconic entrepreneur. But before we start, I'm going to go through some of your CVs, picking out some of the highlights. But I always start with my guests on where did you come from? What's your background? And how important were those early years in becoming the person that you are today? Hello, Syrah. Lovely to be with you. I suppose probably it was my family background. My parents, my father was ex-army officer as my mother was during the war. They came out and settled in Somerset to work. My father worked for Clark Shoes as a sort of management, new management trainee. I would go in on Saturday mornings and sit in the factory while he, you know, he was making 60,000 pairs of shoes a week for Clark's, one of the best and biggest factories in the world. And so I would go and sit and watch and just love the atmosphere and that must have stuck somewhere. From an early age, I was still at school when I came up to London on an Exiat day, hitchhiked up to London and found myself in Portobello Road and just thought, wow, this is magical. A great friend of mine had left the school year before and he was working with um, a great guru called John Michael, who was one of the Carnaby Street kings of the late 60s, early 70s. So I went to John Michael and said, look, 
could I possibly be your management trainee? I'm studying business studies. He had this sort of smile and thought, he said, well, yeah, okay, come along. So my first job was making the coffee. Second job was clearing out the stationery cupboard. Third job was buying accessories, bizarrely, for his guys in doll shops. And I started on the shop floor and then I had hippies coming in selling belts. So I bought some belts from them and made a huge profit and thought, this is crazy. I could do better than this. Went to my father. Dad, where can I get some leather and some buckles? And he said, well, head down to Bermondsey. And Bermondsey Road in those days was the most magical place where you had leather tanners. And I found snakeskins in a myriad of amazing colours. And I thought, God, and chokers were just becoming the accessoire du jour. They were velvet with cameos on, and it was a miniskirt time. It was Mary Quant. It was very exciting in fashion. So I thought I could make snakeskin chokers and I could do a little butterfly on them and I made those and sold them to shops like Bieber and Bus Stop and they were a tearing success and so I then went to my father and mother and said look I've had these great ideas I want to make a company could you possibly come in with me and they said well I can't really as dad because I'm working for Clark's and that wouldn't be ethical but why don't we make your mother a sleeping partner and I think those words why don't we make your mother was probably not (laughs) the right word she wanted to hear but she did they did And that was an enduring partnership for the first 20 years of of Marlborough. My mother would stay at base. We would start with one stitcher out work and then we built it up to a team of people. She was just the greatest administrator and organiser. So we started the production. So I would design. I was living in London. I would come backs and forwards to London to Chilcompton in Somerset. And that way we started to build those first things of me going out and selling, me creating, but knowing I had the trust of having my mother behind me And behind all of that, there was my father teaching me costings, teaching me profit and losses and everything behind it. So they both gave me that wonderful background of family support, endeavour, anything's possible, we can help you make it happen. We're going to talk about your chosen theme today, which is about creating and then reinventing a brand. The brand that you're most famous for is obviously my favourite brand at the moment, the Mulberry brand, which is handbags and now many accessories. Tell us how that started. You've just given us a little bit of an insight. How did that start? How did you come up with the name? What was the vision? The name was interesting. So we're talking about early 70s. At that time, London was the hot fashion scene in the world. And I was doing accessories. So as we sort of did those first designs that came out, what was the name going to be? All the best accessory designers were Italian or French. So you had Pierre Cardin, Etienne Eigner, and they were all signatures on the back of belts. And you've got to remember then, belts were the handbag of today. So belts were the accessory that everybody had to have. And they changed shape and texture and substance from giant buckles to huge hipsters to narrow, thin little belts. So My role was an accessory designer, was a belt designer. And somehow, Roger Saul, I just, it sounded too Anglican. It it didn't sound, it it didn't have that lovely French Exotic enough. Yes, I wasn't exotic enough. You said it, (laughs) Sarah. Sorry. (laughs) Just trying to find the words to help you along. (laughs) Don't know why I didn't think about that. Um, So (laughs) Mulberry, we'd had a mulberry tree outside the school at Kingswood in Bath. And... And I suddenly thought, actually, it's a very English name. It's got, you know, it's got a fruit, it's a wood, it's, it's got loads of different attributes. And it has a very English feel about it. So that became the name. We won the Queen's Award for Export in 79. That was because we were selling 80% abroad. 
which was staggering. And um, I'd done a collection in the mid 70s called Hunting, Shooting, Fishing, which was based around, I was then chasing my wife who I'd met in Paris. She was a model um, and she was a model for Dior and then, and then came back to England and was doing one of those shows that don't happen today, but you'd have one of the magazines would go and do fashion shows all over the country. And they were then at the agricultural shows that you'd have like the Bath and West or something like that. And I would nip off and head off in my old historic car to follow her wherever it was. And uh, I remember one show up in the Midlands and I just walked around the stands between shows and I found these saddle leather accoutrements and hunting and shooting and fishing bags. And I thought, these are amazing. I couldn't produce those at that stage because we were doing really fine leather, but we learned how to make them. And then I took the whole idea and I quilted the bags and I made them more fashionable, softer and trendier. And that collection, and I thought, how am I going to bring it together? And I've always loved the military. I collected Victorian military uniforms in my young days. That's when I first came up to, to Portobello Road to sell them. They were magical, beautiful things. Uh, lots of gold bullying and attachment and the detail was fantastic. And so I went back to that sort of period and I found some old army shirts, which were collarless, three button with a tab across it. And nobody had ever mixed leather with fabric before in this era anyway. And so that blouson put a zip down the middle, different sizes. The army was sort of size naught to size a million. So we did small, medium, large. It didn't matter what the shoulders did because, of course, they were shirt style. So it was soft fabric, so it just fell off your shoulder. So we were lucky enough to pick, or I was lucky enough to pick a design where actually it sort of favoured. And it was just as blouson and loose sportswear was coming in. So that jacket became the centre of the collection. And then I did double belts and triple belts and all sorts of things. And it just became the biggest success in 75, 76. And from there on we just became truly international and luck is a very important ingredient as you know in anything you do as an entrepreneurial business we shot through the 70s there were no recessions everything fashion was the most exciting fashion and music went hand in hand and we literally went from naught to one and a quarter million turnover by the end of the 70s we got a queen's war for export i had sales agents set up around the world and we were flying your theme is creating and reinventing a brand, but your lesson number one, you talked here, timing is everything. When did you know then this successful brand company that you created, Mulberry, if you say timing is everything, when was it time to let go Mulberry? How did you know that time had come? What happened there? Yeah, well, timing, I think probably there's a pre-runner to that, which was in 1996, we went on the stock market and we had bought venture capitalists in five years before, and that had been super successful. We'd sold 25% of the company. They'd come in during the Second World Recession, which was when the Gulf War happened, and we could see trouble coming, and so we bought them in, and we launched Mulberry Home at the same time, which was a huge success, and that again was diversion tactics because fashion had died on its feet, and that got huge success for us. We then opened the hotel, and that was another step sideways, which again gave us massive press and a lot of attention. Then 96, the stock market happened and literally um, huge success, everything sold. But then Gordon Brown gave control to the Bank of England of Sterling. The pound stuck at an all time high 
and we we had a lot of pressure then. So we went from making millions to losing a million in a year simply through currency. So we then hit a time where we had to go out and bring in external investment. And so we went around the world looking at the markets we wanted to be in. We went to the Far East and we bought in a lady called Christina Ong, who was probably one of the great fashion retailers. Um, and she had Donna Karen, Armani, lots of the shops up and down Bond Street. So we thought she has to be a good partner, strong base in Singapore, and she had Armani in the States. And the States was a market once again that we really wanted to capture, but with a partner. So we bought her in and that stock market loved it. Papers loved it. Everybody loved it. But as soon as we'd done it, we realized that actually all she really wanted to do was take control and get me out of the business. Um, and it, I mean, it's a long, long, it's a book in itself, but it was a long battle, which we eventually lost. And it was pretty brutal. Um, literally, my wife's father had died on the Friday. But Saturday morning, I got a phone call from my PR in London saying, Christina Ong has called for your removal as chairman and CEO. So, and I finally thought, you know, life's bigger than this. I fought for this for two years now. Um, I've got my family. And bizarrely, the farm around our house came up for sale for the first time in 100 years. And I'd always dreamed of farming as a child because my grandfather was a farmer and he had a lovely farm over in Suffolk. And so we'd, every summer we'd gone over and sat on the combine harvester or mucked out the pigs or whatever it was. And so there'd been that secret dream here that we had this farm around us, but we didn't own it. We were just in a semi-detached manor house. So that was the, the step for us. Obviously, it was devastating. We were scrabbling around desperately trying to say, OK, well, what can we do next? And um, we still had our hotel, which we'd opened, and we got our Michelin star in that first year. Um, so what I did next was I set out to open a spa, a world you know very well, and create a, a health and beauty collection and, and did things like created spelt germ oil, which I patented and, and then took on as a key ingredient in our product. So we did our spa. That was great. And that worked at that stage. And at so many times, you know, you asked me about proudest moments and most challenging whoa, there's, there's another one coming along that's going to go downwards as much as there is an upward one. So just expect that to be, but really enjoy the journey because that's what being an entrepreneur about is it's having relationships with people that you can go and talk to them and you can convince them of an idea, be they an investor, a customer or whoever it is, and you can see that they love what you're doing, be it an experience or a product or whatever it is you're creating and they get taken in and inspired by what you're doing. Now, if you can do that, there's no nothing more gratifying than that and having people enjoy something you've created. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Centre, who are helping businesses across the UK grow with radio advertising. Head to radiocentre.org forward slash business to discover how radio can boost your company's performance, find out how the radio process works, hear from businesses who found success with audio advertising, access free training and even search for and be linked with stations in your area. You can find out all that and more at radiocentre.org forward slash business. Your lesson number two is be ready to turn on a penny. What do you mean by that? Well, I think almost a follow on from what we've just talked about. When you have an opportunity or a threat, you've got to be able to accept that that's coming. And you must, must turn on a penny, but you've then got to take your team with you. 
it's no good you turning on a penny if the rest of the boat's still charging on forwards. So I think drawing the people around you, I mean, we're just going through a very exciting time at the moment, which we'll come on to. But I have sat down with the whole team with Mulberry. If we had something really exciting or really challenging, we would get up, I would stop production on the floor, stand up on an orange box, address the whole team and tell them what was happening. And just say, look, guys, this is what's going on. There's bad news or there's good news. We've just won the Queen's Order for Export. Or, really sorry, there are going to have to be redundancies because whatever. We'd stand up and face up to it. Now, that could have been a shock at the time, but then that was the beginning of that shock, excitement or otherwise, they needed to hear because behind it, there was going to be threat or opportunity. And in that sense, it is vital that turning on that penny means that that you know, once you know you've got that opportunity or problem, you must wait for that timing to work for you, but you've then got to turn on a penny and really execute fast. Your third lesson is know who your customer is. I mean, customer is king. And I think in the modern world, when you've got social media and you've got people commenting on brands without the brand's permission sometimes, you know, feedback, recommendations, so important. What lessons can you give us to help us to understand our customers more? What are the skills in doing that? Well, I think I'm really talking about there that when you set out, so if you think of what we're doing with Sharpen Park, when we first looked at how would we take a 300-acre farm, what would we create out of it? Well, I, my life has been about adding value, if you like. So saying farmer had gone bust, that's why he was selling. Not going bust, but he was going bust. So he could see, I can't sustain this. Dairy farm, everything good about it, but just not enough land or space or money or whatever. So I knew we couldn't do that. I didn't want to mow 300 acres. It seemed a big lawn to do. So what was I going to do? So Sharpen Park, thousand-year-old estate, amazing thing. So by taking a product and adding value to it, I could do that now. To do that, I had to know, well, who was my customer going to be? And I'd come out of fashion and food was a new fashion. So in the early 2000s, suddenly all the restaurants were opening. Food was becoming really exciting. So we got a lot of PR as we launched this new Sharp and Park brand. And what I'd done was I'd picked a subject which I knew that was you were on the front of a wave. You were able to talk. And then who was the customer? At that stage, it was the yummy mummies, their young children. They were looking to feed them well. They didn't like all the, excuse the language, the crap that was on the shelves. They wanted something that they knew was going to be of nutritional value. We'd come up with the idea of spelt, and then spelt behind that was so many good values in it. Ancient grain, high protein, high fiber, slow release energy, lots of things about it that in, in those relatively early days, we knew were good for you. So it was on that basis that we knew we could, and it tasted great. So we could come out with a product that tasted great, and then we could take the grain from the farm into flour. We built the flour mill. We could then take it onto a product. We could make a muesli. We could make bran flakes. We could make make a pizza, a pasta. You could have all these things. So suddenly we could add value, but still we were absolutely targeted on that young mother in those first five to ten years that she was going to buy for her family what was best for her. And they were also eating out at the top restaurants. So we went to all the top restaurateurs and said, look, would you do a recipe for us? And that's when we first supported Bowel Cancer UK, um, spelt is high in fibre. And therefore, 
could we go out with a lovely message for Balcats UK rather than it's all death and destruction? Look, if you ate a high fibre diet, 40% of all people who eat a high fibre diet don't get bowel cancer that would have done otherwise. That was a massive medical stat at the time. And so we went to the chefs and said, look, would you do a spelt recipe for us? They said, yeah, I'd love to. We've got 40 of the top UK chefs and internationals to all do a recipe for us. Went out with a campaign with Bowel Cancer UK. And suddenly we had widened our market massively, but we'd spoken on the basis of health and taste with the top taste people of the country all endorsing it. So it was engineering, but we knew still exactly who our customer was and who we were trying to talk to, but we didn't have a big budget to go out there. So we needed the help of our friends around us. Honestly, I'm absolutely like gobsmacked because I'm listening to you, how you started off your life and you go from designing belts to creating one of the most iconic brands this country's ever seen, Mulberry. You lose it due to external factors. Some of it could have been because of some of the decisions you made. You then go and reinvent yourself as a farmer to a certain extent. I mean, I know you weren't farming the land, but you went, right, okay, I've got this farm. We're now going to go into spout products and that's a whole new market. I mean... You know, how, what, what, is, what is the lesson in all of that? Yes, it's creating and redefining, but what is a lesson take home to anybody listening to this podcast? Well, I hope it's that anything is possible. You know, if you've got a belief in yourself and you love people around you and you want to talk to them, if you can go to them with a message that is exciting I'd had the idea to create a spelt drink, which is a plant-based drink using our spelt grain as a basis. And we'd developed a syrup out of it, which we'd managed to do. Um, And I was trying to think of coating children's cereals and having no added sugar. And that's another new product coming out shortly, which we'd done. And I went, oh, hang on. Couldn't I use that as a basis of a plant-based spelt drink? Did some experiments on the kitchen sink, and it seemed to work, a bit basic then did some more professional samples, and then realized, yes, we had got the first spelt drink in the UK, the first organic spelt drink, the first drink made, grown, made, milled, and produced within 20 miles anywhere in the world. So we launched that literally this year into the market, and that's the most exciting. But that came out of a sort of sad departure out of Kilver Court but a successful one, but an era moved on. 25 years at Kilver Court, one way or another. Now Sharpen Park is the absolute focus. And we're, we're literally starting a, a press campaign as you and I are talking. And it is probably one of the most exciting times I can remember. Finally, when we talk about leaders and we talk about entrepreneurs, there's always kind of a stereotype. Loud, in your face, go, go, bye, bye, sell, sell. You're very quiet, you're very measured, you're very humble. Is that always been your leadership style? I think so, yeah. I I don't think I've deviated. I'm sure I can be. At times, if I really need to put my foot down, I will do. But it shouldn't be necessary. And you hope that if you've got the right team around you, you're inspiring them to go further themselves. And I'm very lucky at the moment. We're building a really good team with the Sharpen Park 
side and I've brought in some very key individuals who I'm loving working with. But it doesn't matter whether it's us at the top or the team on the bottom. We drew the whole team together, be the top or the bottom. And the bottom could be the top, if you like. It's just trying to say everybody needs to feel involved and motivated to go wherever we're going. And there are times when that's vital to talk them, good or bad, as we talked about earlier. Absolutely amazing just talking to you, Roger Sol. Thank you so much for being an amazing guest on Backing Brilliant Business. Your theme was about creating and reinventing a brand. And my goodness, have you got experience of doing that? Your lesson number one was about timing is everything. Lesson number two, be ready to turn on a penny. And lesson number three was know who your customer is. And, you know, I think you take my breath away. I mean, I think there would have been many times in that life journey where I might have just said, oh my goodness, I think I'm going to put my feet up. But you're going on and on and you've got your latest project, Sharpen Park, which is an organic farm, 300 acre park growing the ancient grain spelt. Before you go, there'll be many people listening to that story and going, wow, we would like you to just come up with a little radio jingle so that when people turn off this podcast, they will remember your words of wisdom to carry on throughout the day. So what would your little radio jingle be so that uh, people are reminded of your message? Okay, so I don't quite know whether I should sing this or say it. I think you definitely should sing it, Roger. You should definitely sing it. Okay, well, I'll try a sort of little bit in that direction. So have a strong vision. Don't wait for permission. There is no parachute. Expect turbulence en route. I love it. I love it. That really does sum up your whole life story, I think, just in that amazing jingle. Have a strong vision. Don't wait for permission. There's no parachute. Expect turbulence en route. Roger Sol, I hope one day I have the pleasure of having dinner with you because I could carry this conversation on and on. I am so intrigued by your life experiences and I've learned so much and I I really wish you all the very best. Uh, Not that you need any luck because you're going to you're successful. You're going to succeed. But um, thank you so much for being an amazing guest. My pleasure. Well, that's been the Backing Brilliant Business podcast with me, Sarah Khan. And I really hope you've enjoyed the many words of wisdom that came from our chat. There'll be more amazing guests to come in the series with plenty of business lessons to be learned. So please subscribe and leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to follow Radio Centre across all of their socials on Instagram at Radio Centre underscore UK and on Twitter at Radio Centre. The Backing Brilliant Business series was produced by Audio Always for Radio Centre and co-created by Eardrum. Visit radiocentre.org forward slash business for more information.